We're back. If you listen to this program regularly, and we certainly hope you do, you probably have noticed that um, our uh, topic selection tends to be a bit loose. We do tend to talk about whatever we damn well please on this program, and and a lot of times, thankfully, that does not include politics. So, you know, good Lord, we're not Rush Limbaugh. But unfortunately, I've been forced by circumstances I won't go into to monitor Rush Limbaugh lately. So, Mr. McMillan, I think rather than go through a jackass of the week every week for the month of June, let's just make Rush Limbaugh the jackass of the month. (laughs) They cut an article that was in the Sacramento News and Review some time back by Ken Magri about Mr. Limbaugh and his origins here in Sacramento, which I'm Sad to report, uh, he gave birth to the Limbaugh phenomenon. He went from KFBK in Sacramento to his big national platform. But Ken told a story in the SNNR, which uh, I'd never heard, and I was quite, quite stunned to read. I think I'll share it with you. Commenting on the fact that Limbaugh famously said in January uh, that he could summarize, uh, he was asked to summarize in a 400-word essay for someone, uh, what he thought about the new administration. He said, I can do it in four. I hope he fails. Said Mr. Magri, Rush has been spewing bile like this and getting away with it for almost a quarter of a century. Any other on-the-air personality would have been fired years ago. In fact, an ethnic joke gave Limbaugh his first shot at talk radio in 1984 after News Talk 1530 KFBK host Morton Downey Jr., told a politically incorrect joke on the air. The joke went something like this. A Swede, Norwegian, and Chinaman all get hired to work on the railroad. Foreman tells the Swede, you're in charge of setting the railroad ties. Tells the Norwegian, you're in charge of hammering the ties down. He tells the Chinaman, you're in charge of supplies. They all nod in agreement, and the foreman leaves. A few days later, the foreman shows up and sees the Swede and the Norwegian. How's everything going, he asks. Well, we're almost out of supplies and we haven't seen the Chinaman for three days. So the three men set out to find him. But just then, as they round the corner, he jumps out yelling, Supplies! Ladies and gentlemen, that is a pretty crappy joke. But Ken Magri went on. In another era, it might have been funny, but City Councilman Jimmy Yee immediately called to complain mostly about the use of the word Chinaman. He politely explained to Downey that for Chinese Americans, this was an offensive word comparable to the use of the N-word when referring to African Americans. It would have been easy for Downey to just apologize, but he didn't. Instead, he used Yee's phone call to set up his signature angry man tirade, yelling he didn't have to apologize to Yee or anybody. The next day, Downey indeed apologized to Councilman Yee at a press conference. He humbly announced his resignation, then slinked out of town with his tail between his legs. Enter Rush Limbaugh. 
Rush flew in from Kansas City to audition for Downey's job. He was terse, quick-witted, and fast-paced. He ran through callers as if he needed to catch the plane back to Kansas City, which, in fact, he did. However, Rush was an immediate hit with listeners, so KFBK hired him for their 9 to noon slot. Anyway, it's a pretty interesting article. Ken goes on to describe his first encounter with Limbaugh on the air discussing the colorizing of classic black and white movies. Noted that Limbaugh took Mr. Jane Fonda's side, referring in this case to Ted Turner. He said he reasoned that black and white's boring. It's not even real art. I don't care about the art form of movies, Rush said. I think to call movies art is getting a little overblown. I, asked if, I called him and asked him if he liked seeing Ansel Adams' black and white photographs colorized by someone who didn't have permission. Yes, he said. It frustrates me when there's no color. Apparently the, uh, the author called Limbaugh several times when he was in Sacramento. No, the last time I called in, Rush had just announced he was leaving Sacramento for a national radio show. This was one of his last shows. And astonishingly, he decided to spend the final hour defining date rape as something distinguishable from real rape. He kept repeating that date rape was different because there was a reason for the rape. The date and the expectation it creates was Limbaugh's reason. It was over the top, even for Rush, said Ken. I got through to producer Kitty O'Neill, who was screening the calls. I want you to know, said Kitty, there are some women at this radio station who are very upset with Rush right now. So she put him through to the big guy, and he said, So Rush, now you've become an apologist for rapists? Is that how you toughen up for New York and your new national audience? Anyway, the rest, as we know, is history. Limbaugh's now on 800 stations across the U.S. I guess I bring this all up because my big question out of all of this is, was a non-politically correct joke so bad? I guess the question we need to ask at some point in discussion of this is, wouldn't it have been better to just, like, you know, let Morton Downey make an ass of himself, which he did on a regular basis? Because it seems to me if, there, if ever there was a case of jumping out of the frying pan and into the fire, uh, this is one of them. Morton Downey's karma did eventually catch up with him. I remember seeing him on his national television program where he would smoke deliberately in the face of people he didn't like. And of course, one of his favorite topics was the rights of smokers to do whatever the hell they want and smoke wherever the hell they wanted. Downey, the chain smoker, succumbed not that long afterward to lung cancer. What uh, Limbaugh's karma is going to earn him, well, it remains to be seen. Of course, this, this whole thing is kind of fresh from today's headlines. Apparently, one of the stars of Moe, Larry, and Curly in the Morning. No, I'm sorry. Actually, it's Rob, Arnie, and Don in the Morning. Said recently, talking about uh, transgender individuals, quote, If my son, God forbid, if my son put on a pair of high heels, I'd probably hit him with one of my shoes. I'd throw a shoe at him. This apparently caused a firestorm among the Gay and Lesbian Alliance Against Defamation, which demanded apologies from the program. Well, it was a pretty dumbass thing to say. But if they do manage to get Arnie yanked off the air, let's just hope he's not replaced with the future Rush Limbaugh of the uh, next decade, huh? But what really got me about Limbaugh recently was, uh, actually, this is actually a subject of some concern. He was talking about uh, Sonia Sotomayor and noted that, well, <laughs> she's Catholic. She might be anti-abortion. And apparently the prospective high court judge has been a little bit vague about where she stands on the issue. 
chronic. If David Souter, a guy picked by Bush 41, thought to be a solid conservative who disappointed all those on the right when he turned out to be pretty middle of the road, well, uh, wouldn't it be sad if he was replaced by a, a Democratic president who thought he was putting in someone who was liberal who turned out to be a closet conservative? Ooh, scary. Speaking of scary, I love the quote uh, by President Reagan's chief of staff, Ken Duberstein. Back in 1988, he helped screen Anthony Kennedy, who made the transition from Sacramento to the national stage, who now, by the way, is the court's swing vote. You throw the Constitution out the window when you're vetting a Supreme Court nominee. That's nice to know. Anyway, what separates us from the likes of Rush Limbaugh and right-wing cranks is that we try to rely on facts. Whenever possible, we try to use them, and we try to use logic. And, you know, one story that kind of tests our ability in this area is this, this article that's, you know, been all over the place on National Geographic Channel about this 47-million-year-old skeleton found in what is today Germany um, of a, well, depending on who you believe, either a lemur or man's ancestor. What I find curious about, about the science on this is that you can make the case for both. What I hate about all of this is when it's described as a missing link. They've named this, this fossil Ida. It is, by, in many respects, like the best primate fossil ever found. It's incredibly complete, and it's incredibly old. A, a primate going back 47 million years, that, that's, a, that's a heck of a fossil find. But what's curious from a scientific standpoint is it just doesn't fit anything exactly. Which is what you would expect if you went back 47 million years and looked at what was hopping around then. From whatever was hopping around then, uh, you know, what has come forward in time includes all existing primates of today. Many of which in many respects resemble this creature, which means it is sort of a lemuroid. But on the other hand, you're going so far back in time that who's to say this isn't our direct ancestor? So, I mean, people are making the case for both, and probably both are correct. The, uh, the, the articles in the National Geographic Channel uh, uh, quoted Norwegian paleontologist Jorn Hurum of the University of Oslo saying, This fossil is so complete it is unheard of in the primate record. You have to get a human burial to see something this complete. Said Hurum, it is a representative of an ancestral group giving rise of all kinds of higher primates. We are not dealing with our great-great-great-grandmother, but perhaps our great-great-great-aunt. Which is probably a fair statement, but it's probably also a fair statement to echo what critics have said. In this case, Chris Beard of the Carnegie Museum of Natural History at Johns Hopkins University, who said, referring to Ida, it's more like our third cousin, twice removed. It's part of the primate family tree. That's about as far away from humans as you can get and still be a primate. This is where I think people just don't understand, you know, how, how evolution works. I mean, if you go back that far in time, you've got this lemur-like creature. Well, that, you know, undoubtedly creatures like that gave rise to modern lemurs, and probably creatures like that also gave rise to monkeys, apes, and humans. Where does this creature lie on that, uh, on, and that, on those branching uh, lower limbs? Well, nobody knows. 
And that whole term, missing link, that, that is something like creationists love to throw around. There, there are missing links in the fossil record, and there's also a pretty astonishingly complete fossil record. You know, if you, if you do, choose not to look at where the, where the gaps are. Anyway, one thing you can say about this fossil, it is a remarkable find, and one can only hope that, uh, you know, that as time goes on, you know, something even remotely this, uh, this good will, will also be uncovered. One, one can only hope that, uh, that in the future, you know, fossils this good may, may yet be uh, dug out of the ground. All right, on last week's program, we promised you a return to the show of our bicycling correspondent regarding this story from France. And joining us now, fresh off his bike, returning home to Sacramento, is our own bicycling correspondent, Paul Dorn. Welcome back, Paul. Well, hi, Douglas. Thank you so much for having me on. Uh, it was a nice breeze heading from the west, so I got a good tailwind on my ride home tonight. So I'm here and happy to talk with you. That's the bicyclist's dream, isn't it? The tailwind. Exactly. It's a lo much longer trip when you've got a headwind, definitely. So uh, I got to ask you, you, you're familiar with the story of them, the, those enlightened French taking their prisoners out on bicycles? I, I am uh, familiar with that. And, you know, the, the French do take a much more uh, enlightened approach to rehabilitation of their inmates and their prisoners. And, uh, you know, apparently what they had was uh, 194 inmates escorted by about 124 prison guards and sports instructors, uh, set off on a ride for 2,400 kilometers, about 1,500 miles. So, uh, you know, th this is not unknown. Uh, you know, in the United States, many prisons do have programs where inmates will rehabilitate bikes for children, for instance. Uh -huh. they'll, they'll receive donated used bikes, and they'll learn uh, bike mechanic skills, and it's, you know, part of a a program of rehabilitation to give prisoners skills that they might use in, in the economy once they return to society. They've paid their debts and uh, can resume some productive role in society. So even in the United States, we do have prison programs where people learn bike mechanic skills. Yeah, I'm looking here at San Quentin, as a matter of fact, and I mean, they've got eyeglass repair <laughs> programs that teach people how to do uh, computers for schools and different sorts of things. So. Yeah, this French experiment's kind of out there a little bit, but uh, I'll be interested to see what the results are. Well, you know, I, I think I don't know if we've ever said this when we've talked on the show before, but I've certainly said it to many a friend, and I think I've said it on the air, but honest to God, I think that, speaking as a physician, we'd use a heck of a lot fewer antidepressants if people would just get on their bicycles and get out in the environment. It, it, it really is really quite a mood elevator. It is, and, uh, you know, there are numerous health benefits to regular physical activity and such as bicycling and I can I can attest to the impact that bicycling has had on my life um, when I began my bike commuting I drank and I smoked and uh, one of the things I quickly learned is I can't be very effective as a bike commuter if I'm waking up hungover and uh, have a short breath because I'm smoking so both of those things I've stopped doing and enjoying a healthier lifestyle in, in part due to my bike commuting, my choice of how I get to work every day. Well, Paul, you've got a new book out about that very topic, about how people can uh, can commute more effectively using bicycles. And, and why don't you tell us a bit about the book? And well, first, what's the title of the book? Uh, it's called The Bike to Work Guide, Get Fit, Go Green, Save Gas. Uh, it's published by Adams Media. It came out, actually, it arrived in stores in December, but... Um, 
got a little bit of attention this past month during Bike to Work Month. Um, May is National Bike Month, as you're well aware, and hopefully many of your listeners in Davis are well aware. So, um, you know, I, I spoke to a few media outlets, and um, my hope is I encourage a few people to consider bike commuting. Well, you joined our good pals over at Insight on KXJZ with Jeffrey Callison, and uh, I had a chance to listen into that. Why don't we go over some of that same ground and how and talk about how people can, you know, uh, they can actually do this. Yeah, they can. I mean, one of the things I've said on the program is that I'm a, a middle-aged guy of a certain circumference. You know, I'm not a Lance Armstrong, lightweight, high-performance athlete type of guy. So if I can do it, just about anybody can do it. And really, it just takes... Uh, uh, you know, a commitment to, to, to try it, you know, even once a week maybe. And uh, I think a lot of people will find it quite enjoyable. You start relating to your um, community in a different way. You're not just driving through as quickly as you can. You're actually kind of biking along and you're smelling who's having a cookout, you know, which house is, uh, you know, having an argument. You're hearing snatches of conversations from pedestrians. You're waving to kids. You're ringing your bell. Um, you're smelling the flowers, the trees. Uh, you, you're just really feeling much more connected to your community, your surroundings. Um, you're saving money by commuting green. It's economically, uh, environmentally sensible, and uh, and you do save money. Uh, so it, it, you know, there's a number of benefits to bike commuting. So the book came about. I mean, for about 15 years here, I've had a, a website and a blog trying to encourage people to think about it and offering tips and suggestions on how they can do it effectively, how they might connect um, other modes of transportation, such as transit or driving, you know, ride part of the way on a, on a bus or a train and bike the rest to, to get through longer distances. So having been trying to help people for a couple, you know, for 15 years, uh, the book was just sort of a natural outgrowth of that to try to reach a, a larger audience. Well, say, say I wanted to, 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 to do this and I wanted to start doing a, a bicycling to work. What's, what distance is really realistic for the novice? Well, most trips in the United States are three to five miles, and that's about a 20-minute to a half-hour bike ride. So I would say three to five miles is entirely reasonable, certainly here in the Sacramento Valley where the terrain is flat and our climate is pretty uh, comfortable most of the year. Uh, three to five miles is pretty doable. I have a, a little more exceptional commute where I live here in Sacramento and I work in Davis at UC Davis. And uh, so I, I get to work by a combination of biking and Amtrak train. And uh, I've been doing it here now for two years and it works really well and I enjoy a nice bike ride home at the end of the day. I think more Americans are going to start looking at alternatives to driving because I think collapse or the bankruptcy this week, earlier this week, of General Motors is kind of a landmark moment in American history. I mean, yeah. General Motors was the quintessential you know, company of ascendant American you know, uh, capitalism, and having it collapse into bankruptcy kind of tells us something about the times we're living in that we've really turned a corner in, in kind of our economy. And I think the unfortunate reality is is that uh, we're going to be a lot less affluent in future def decades, and that's going to make it harder for us to sustain our mass motoring culture 
as individual households, we're going to find it a little more difficult to maintain car payments on two or more vehicles. And as, um, you know, cities and towns and counties, we're going to find it harder and harder to find the resources to maintain interstate freeway systems and local road systems. So I think a lot of people are going to start looking more favorably at healthy, sustainable, alternative forms of transportation, transit, walking, bicycling. Well, I think you're right. Yeah. And, and of course, a lot of people are concerned about the fact that we are running out of oil. And so uh, alternatives yeah. to, to that, what, what, I mean, what better alternative is there than to not use any and instead, you know, pedal yourself around? Yeah. I mean, I think that's, you know, a lot of people will debate the whole peak oil phenomenon, but it is a non-renewable resource. Sooner or later, we're going to start heading, hitting the uh, downslope of peak oil. Uh, many debate whether we've already gone past the peak or we're at the peak now or soon to hit the peak, but we're going to run out. Or, you know, there, there, there might be a lot of oil left on the planet, but a lot of it's 3,000 feet under the sea or uh, in environmentally sensitive areas or politically challenged areas or um, embedded under tar sands or something like that. It's just going to be a lot harder to get at, which will make it more expensive. It's going to be a challenging time. So I think it's a, a great period to be a bike commuting advocate, you know, an advocate for sustainable transportation. And uh, hopefully some people might look into the options that they might have. Well, Paul, actually, I, w I do want to look into it. And what I want to do is propose a field trip. I, uh, I want to buy a new bicycle. I haven't bought one in 20 years. I want one that will get me on a fairly short commute, but I want one that's not just a, you know, a clunker. So if, if, you, yeah. if, you would, if you would assist me in that process, I'd be most grateful. I'm always happy to go bike shopping. And, and actually, you know, I, that's one of the questions I frequently get from readers of my blog or my website is, you know, what is the right bike to commute on? And my answer is always, you know, whatever works for you. And, uh, but I pretty consistently suggest that people get to a bike shop, that contemporary bikes, modern bikes are just far more, uh, you know, technology has just advanced so much more in the last couple decades. So you might have that bike in the garage. Uh, the gearing is not going to be as good as uh, bicycles today. The frame materials aren't going to be as lightweight and durable. Um, you know, and the components like the tires. I mean, uh, one of the biggest headaches of bike commuters is the flat. But today's tires, um, many of the bike tires are made with Kevlar linings, other yeah. puncture-resistant materials. So new, new bikes just perform better. I'm going to take you up on that. I'm hoping in the next week or two that yeah, you can join me here. We can go pick something out, and then we'll talk about uh, that learning process for our listeners. That sounds like fun. Uh, and before we go, Paul, where, where's your book available? I know it's available on Amazon. Okay. Um, I know it's available at the UC Davis Bookstore, a um, few other local book retailers. Uh, people should ask for it. I'm sure that would make my publisher very happy if people <laughs> asked for it at some of the local shops. But. All right, and its title again is? The Bike to Work Guide, Go Green, Get Fit, Save Gas. Paul Dorn, our bicycling correspondent, he'll be back before long. Thanks for talking to us again, Paul. Yeah, thank, thank you, Douglas. Anyway, let's, uh, let's take a break. You're listening to Radio Parallax. I'm Douglas Everett.